All right, well, Pastor Van Geldern is in Peru and uh, cannot be here today, and so I have a thought for you, and I'm glad that you're here, and I wondered if you'd be willing to find the book of Deuteronomy, and why don't I open in prayer? I'm not sure how the order of events typically goes, but I would feel better if we prayed first. I'm assuming Pastor probably starts with prayer also, so let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would uh, give us understanding and uh, open our hearts and minds, and Lord, we do want to today... Uh, walk according to your plan and in your will and uh, loving you and responding to your love to us. And so would you bless uh, this time and I pray this now in Jesus name. Amen. All right. I want to talk briefly about God's plan. And I'm going to represent it by this triangle right here. We'll call this God's plan. And uh, from a 40,000 foot view, Deuteronomy 6 gives us a little understanding of God's big picture plan for our lives. And this is probably in the Bible, this is one of the most familiar passages. If you are one of our Jewish friends, this would be mandatory uh, knowledge right here. And it's verses 4 and 5. I'll read it, you can follow along. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And uh, we'll end there. So uh, we call this the Shema. This is that, that great declaration of faith that the uh, Israelite people were taught. And it starts with that, that expression, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the idea that's being expressed there is God's uniqueness. And uh, the reality is there is only one God, and uh, that's certainly implied, but the idea of him being one Lord has more to do with his uniqueness. There is no other like God. There's one Lord, and his name is Jehovah, right? Yahweh. And uh, so after saying that uh, to the nation, remember, even though all around you there's all these other gods by other names, there's really one God. He's unique the creator of all of us. And uh, then after saying that, it's interesting in this, set, in this uh, verse, it says, because the Lord is one, we are to love him. And uh, we can think of lots of passages where we're told other ways to respond to him, like we are to fear him. The Bible is very clear. We're to fear God. Uh, we're to know God. Those things are true. But in this, in this verse here that is kind of a central thought to the nation, and by extension to all of us, the, the response to God's uniqueness is love. We are to love the Lord our God. And in fact, it's a, a complete love, right? Our whole, um, uh, let's see, our heart with all of our soul and with all of our might. So I'm going to write God's plan just simply as Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And... Um, Six verses four and five. And uh, not trying to be overly simplistic, um, but I would think that actually if we were to take the words that are said here right in the middle of God's restatement of the laws to his people, I think that does actually encompass our response. So God's plan for us, God's plan was uh, to enter into a love relationship with people. And uh, we know that that was only accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But that's God's plan. And so God's plan is to love us, and God's plan is for us to love him. 
that really is the whole of our, of our life. And if you have read the book Experiencing God or have been familiar with parts of it, uh, that is one of the very first points that our writer establishes, that the point of our, uh, of our Christian life is in our, in our knowing God's will and trying to search after God's will is to know God himself. And it's easy for us to get so focused on God's will that we lose God in God's will. And uh, the point that he makes right in the beginning of that book is, is our place to walk with God. And if we're walking with God, the will of God will get done. But it's easy for us to look for God's will and miss God in the looking. And if we walk with God and love God, the rest will be fine. It's all going to make sense. Okay, so I want to start there, and I want to think a little bit about our walk with God and our relationship uh, with God. All right. Having done that, then I want you to find Genesis 2. I might have you flip around a little bit, but I want to talk about Genesis 2 and then also right into Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 gives an overview of the week of creation. Genesis 2 gives some particulars of what happened on day number 6, if you want to understand how it works. So day 1, our day, uh, chapter 1 is all six days kind of laid out, ending with God resting. And uh, chapter 2 goes back and gives some, some finer details in what happened on day 6. And day six, you might remember, if you know the, the timeline of creation was important, because it was on day six that God made mankind. And uh, everything before that was kind of preparation for day six, when God made mankind. And it says in verse number seven, some things about that day. So um, let's just read verse seven. It says, chapter two, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And uh, I'm going to do my best to draw um, those three parts of humankind. And it says it right here in this verse. In fact, the first verse that really begins to explain mankind, it gives us these three key aspects to each of us. And um, these three aspects to each of us, is it going to hurt your feelings if I move this? Here, just take a second and look at it. It's very pretty. Look at how pretty this is. Okay, all right, now I'm going to move this. Okay, all right. So, uh, there are three, there's three parts to us. Now, I don't want to confuse you because we are one person, okay? Even though there's parts to our person, um, we're still one person. So, you can't just take away one part of us. It's all three of these parts are all combined together in the one person that we are. But that verse gives us all three of those parts, and maybe you can help me to define or to, uh, to pick out what those three parts are. What's the first thing that verse 7 talks about? It says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. All right, so there's a part of us that is the part that you see. All right, so I'm going to draw... Here's Pastor Schultz here. I have a very wide tie on. It's like a 1970s tie. Okay, so there's, there's, uh, there's the body part of us, okay? So the body part of us, and that's the part of us that is seen. 
right? Okay, now the verse gives two other parts of us pretty clearly uh, delineated there. So what is the next part that's mentioned? No, do me a favor. What's the last part that's mentioned? Okay, it says, and man became a living soul. And the word there in Hebrew has the idea of a living person, okay? A soul, all right, a person. So, I'll, draw, I'll try and draw a soul. Maybe you all are better at drawing souls than I am. Pretty hard to draw a soul. Okay, in fact, here's what I'm going to do. So that you know this is a soul, I'm going to make it blue. I mean, maybe I should have drawn it as like dotted lines or something. Okay, so, so then we've got our soul. Okay, then the middle part that was expressed there, and I had you skip over it. What is the third part to mankind? The breath of life. And uh, the word breath in the Hebrew is sometimes translated spirit. In this case, it's breath. But it's really the God-connected part of us. So I'm going to use the word spirit, okay? All of us have a spirit. And so in that uh, first day there, I'm sorry, day six, but the first day of mankind, uh, God did breathe into us, and it was that breath. where God imparted into us his life. Um, I remember in John chapter 1, you have this expression, again, kind of an overarching, don't turn to John 1 at this point, but kind of an overarching expression just about God. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And uh, describing the Lord Jesus right there, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so that day, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, day number 6, God made the whole of man, and a man has three parts. The body, which is the part that's seen. The soul, which is that, um, uh, the, the person, the real inner self, in that sense. We'll talk about soul in a minute. And then spirit. And uh, all three of those parts are inextricably connected until death, when the immaterial part of us is separated from our body. So in, from the very moment of conception, all three parts are together, body, soul, and spirit. Okay, all right. So the body's the part that's seen. Soul you can't see, not exactly. And uh, the spirit you can't quite see. And we're going to talk about that distinction in just a minute. Go back to Genesis 2. Look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so he describes then that in this garden, he puts all of these various trees, and it's interesting, it says these trees of this this uh, foliage, you know, these trees that he made there, it says every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And I want you to hold on to those two distinctions there, pleasant to the sight and good for food. We're going to run across those words in just a few minutes. And a little bit further down, uh, verse number 16, 
It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Okay, wow. And a lot could be unpacked in that, but I want to focus on that expression right there. Uh, so God tells um, Adam, and then in fact in just a few verses, Later, he creates Eve, and so the two of them together are given this opportunity to uh, love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, and strength. And so Adam and Eve are given this opportunity and um, ushered into this garden life. They're told just uh, enjoy it all. Enjoy everything God gave them. He said, but there's this one particular thing I don't want you to do anything with, and that's this tree in the middle. Don't eat it. Because if you eat thereof, Thou shalt surely die. Okay, it's pretty simple, right? So then going to Genesis 3, and I realize, you know, you all probably are following what I'm saying, and uh, this should be fairly simple. So now we come to chapter 3. So Adam and Eve are together, and, and uh, they are in this um, perfect environment, in this perfect connection with their creator, God. And uh, then we have... Uh, this character presented to us. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, there's two people that are never, uh, they're never proven to us. They're never even exactly introduced to us. They just appear in the story. And it's because we know both without being taught them. And the first is God himself. In the beginning, God. There's no pre-verses, no explanations, just God. And uh, we didn't need God to introduce himself other than he just appears in the story. And we all know why, because we all know God. It's interesting, in chapter 3, there's no explanation of who the serpent is, and we all know who he is. He didn't have to be explained to us. There wasn't verses before chapter 3, verse 1, explaining who the serpent was. We all knew. Because somewhere in the very core of who we are, we all know who he is, and we all know who God is. So he's never explained. He's just all of a sudden in the story, here comes the serpent. More subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Let me ask you a question. You all are smart folks. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God say they should not eat of every tree of the garden? Yes or no? He did say that, right? So the devil comes to her in particular at this point, and asks her a question, and the question is based on something God did say. God said, yeah, don't, you can't eat of every tree. True. Now think about it. How many trees were in the garden? I don't know. I wasn't there. Many, right? Many. The whole world. The whole world of trees was at their disposal, and there is one tree in particular that they couldn't touch, right? So it's a really dubious thing that the devil does, right? Is it true that God is actually withholding something from you? That's, that's essentially what he's saying. Is it true that God is actually keeping you back from something? Uh, let me take a minute and talk to you a little bit about syllogisms. Anybody know what a syllogism is? A syllogism. Somebody must know what a syllogism is. What is a syllogism? Sure. Okay, fine. Let's talk about that. That's good. No problem. Okay, uh, what's a syllogism? 
If you all don't answer, Mrs. Allen's going to have to answer. Yeah, okay, all right. So a syllogism is just a simple argument, okay? So when we talk about a syllogism, it's a basic argument with two premises and a conclusion, okay? So we're going to talk about a, a categorical syllogism today. You can work with me on it. So um, God essentially told them something that they couldn't do. So uh, God gave a restriction. Did I spell that right? Restriction. Okay, God gave a restriction. Uh, true or false? Did God restrict them from something? Yes. Of course he did. Sure. He said, he said don't eat of uh, this particular tree. He even gave a rationale for it. He said, don't eat of this tree because if you do, you're going to die. All right? So that seems like a fairly fair thing for him to do. Don't eat of this tree because if you do eat of this tree, you're going to die. Now, um, let me ask you all then, what do you think motivated God to give them that restriction? Okay, yes, that's exactly right, and that's not what I'm fishing for, but that's 100% right, and this is like a big point that we're going to get across, yes. But what motivated God to give them that restriction? His love is what I'm looking for. And you're right. You all are right. I was looking for that in particular. Because he didn't want them to die, right? So God loves his creation. He made Adam and Eve, and he loved them, was loving on them. They had a great relationship with him, and God did not want anything to get in the way of that. In fact, he didn't want them to die. So he said to them, okay, you've got everything. Every tree is yours. No uh, restriction but one. Just don't eat of that one tree, because this tree is the tree that when you eat of it, you're going to die. And so his motivation was love. Do you see that? Don't you think that's true? When you give your children restrictions, why are you motivated? Is because you want to feel like you've got authority? You know, when you tell your kids to not play in the street, is it because you wanted to prove to them that you're the boss? No. Why, why are you motivated to give a restriction like that to your kid? Now, don't go play in the street. Why would you tell your child not to play in the street? There's more space. You know, if they're going to play kickball, wouldn't it be better in the street than in the yard where the tree is? Not this tree, but um, why, why do you tell your kid not to play in the street? This is a no-brainer, but just say it. Why? Because you love them. You don't want to get hit by a car, right? It's very uncomfortable getting hit by cars. And generally, when kids get hit by cars, the car wins, right? So you don't want them playing in the street. So you're motivated by love. Uh, when you tell your child not to touch the, the stovetop, hot, hot, you're going to burn yourself. Why did you tell them that? Because you don't have to clean up skin cells from your stove? Okay, that was gross, actually. But um, no, it's because you love them, right? So, our, uh, so, you know, you give restrictions out of love. Okay, well, here comes the devil. And the devil, this is, hey, listen, in advertisements, uh, maybe as you learn syllogisms and you notice advertisements, so often advertisements don't tell you every part of the syllogism. So they'll give you like, um, a major premise, and uh, they'll imply a minor premise, and then draw a conclusion, you should have such and such a thing, or whatever. So the devil never really does say what the minor premise of this argument is. But the minor premise is implied by the tone of his voice, by the asking of the question, and I've already kind of alluded to it here. So we already saw in Genesis 2 that God gave a restriction. And uh, he made it pretty clear 
why he gave the restriction. He didn't want him to die. Sounds like love to me. But the devil asked this question. He asked this question kind of, it's, it's, it's straight up legit. It's true. God did give a restriction, but the way he asked it implies something that's a little dubious, and that would be this. He essentially implies that that it's bad that God gave a restriction. And so kind of feel it out, like when the devil says this to her, did God really say you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And he's asking in a way that he's pointing out the thing they can't have. So he's not pointing out all of what God gave them. He's pointing out the one thing they can't have. And he's doing it in a way that he's getting her, in particular at this point, to think about the one thing she can't have. And uh, can I just submit to you, that's what the devil does all the time. Okay, that was not just Genesis 3. That's like every day, right? The devil's really good at pointing out what you don't have to make you discontent with all that you do have. Okay, that's like uh, strategy 101 for the devil. Point out the, what you don't have. And you know a lot of times what you don't have, you don't have because God doesn't want you to have it. Because if you did have it, it would actually hurt you, not help you. And the devil has a way of making what God has held back from you to seem like what you need more than anything else. When in fact, God is the giver of all good and perfect gifts. So here, uh, he says to her, is it true that God is holding something back from you? And, and he doesn't expressly state it, but he does imply what I'm using here as my minor premise, that giving restrictions is bad. Okay, now you all are intelligent ladies. We've just given the two premises of a uh, categorical syllogism. God is a giver of restrictions, or God gave a restriction, and the giving of restrictions is bad. Okay, we actually have uh, a major term, a major term, and uh, two uh, have a middle term that agrees. So we can come now with a, a logical conclusion. So what is the conclusion of this categorical syllogism? What do you think? What? Okay. This is a valid syllogism. It's a valid syllogism in, in the fact that our terms agree. And uh, so here, we've drawn the conclusion that God is bad. Now, the reason that you don't like it is you don't agree with the conclusion, because you know about God to know God's not bad, right? In fact, you know God is anything but bad. He's good. Um, but the reason this is a bad syllogism isn't because of the structure. It's a bad syllogism because the minor premise is not true, right? The minor premise is not true. But at first blush, you know, Eve is looking at it going, huh, I never thought about it. That's an interesting thought. Wow. And continue on in the story then, okay? So here we are in verse number three, I believe, right? Um, let's see. Uh, verse number two, actually. And uh, uh, the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat it, uh, not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened. 
Now, remember I pointed out in chapter 2 that the trees of the garden were good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and good for food, right? How did I read that there? Is it verse 8? Um, 9, and out of the ground made God to grow every tree of the, uh, pleasant to the eyes and good for food. And here in chapter 3, she looks at that tree in the middle, and she says, what do you know? It's pleasant to the eyes, and it's good for food. So she's already lowered what the, tr the tree is. She's kind of made it common. And then she sees that one third aspect of it, which is what the devil is trying to get across. It's a tree desire to make her wise. Give her something she doesn't have yet. And that would be divine insight. And because God apparently is holding back from her. Okay, uh, let me ask you a question that's going to lead us to the main point. So um, Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3. So their eyes are opened. They were ashamed. They realized something happened to them. And that's why later in chapter 3, when God comes, they hide. So something happened at that point. We know, of course, at that point they died. Um, when did they fall? Now I want you to think about it. When did they fall? And this is an important question to ask because this will have a lot to do with how we can withstand falling in our lives because the devil's trickery hasn't changed. He will still present his will in terms of what God is holding back from you is what would be better if you had it. This is how the devil still works today. So he presents to them, hey, the better way is in the, in the place of restriction. And if you go there, you're going to find it better. And so the devil points out what you don't have, minimizes what you do have, and if you can figure out what is the issue, why did they fall, when did they fall, that'll help you withstand the fall when the devil plays the same trick on you. Because the devil will do the same thing to you. Well, what about this thing you don't have? And I'm saying, by and large, what you don't have is because God knows you don't need it, or if you had it, it would hurt you. Okay? So God told them don't eat of that tree because he loved them. It wasn't because God just needed to prove something about himself to them. At that point, he just wanted them to live. And isn't it possible in your life, the thing you don't have that you think you want so bad might be the very thing that would cut you off from the life of God? Maybe. I don't know. When did Adam and Eve fall? Somebody brought this up already. I don't know your name. Nina. Nina. So Nina brought up something that I think is pretty interesting, and there's no explanation for it, so we can't know for sure. But when Eve describes the, pro, uh, the prohibition, she adds a phrase to it. Uh, yeah, well, God said we can't eat it, and actually we can't touch it. Well, in the first explanation when God said, he just said, don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. Where did the don't touch it come from? I don't know. Maybe her and Adam, talking about this whole thing, decided, wow, if we're not supposed to eat it, let's don't even touch it. Possible. Would that be bad? No, it's not bad. You know, hey, let's be more careful, you know. Maybe she didn't know God's words that well and got herself all mixed up. It's possible. It doesn't really say, okay, so it maybe isn't the biggest point. But it is interesting that she says something a little bit different than what God had said in the beginning. Maybe she's just trying to be careful. Okay, but when did Adam and Eve fall? Adam and Eve fell when they stopped depending upon the words of God. That's when they fell. Ultimately, when they fell, they broke God's laws. But I want to challenge you all this morning with this. You fall before you break God's laws. Think about Adam and Eve before this moment. Adam and Eve were living in a perfect relationship with God. 
His word was their life. Everything he said, they obeyed. They had no disconnect between them and God. In a certain sense, actually in the rightest sense, they were living perfectly by faith. Adam and Eve were living perfectly by faith. They were walking with God. What God said was their life. God's presence was their life. His words was their life. And so as long as they were in faith, in the words of God, they had perfect communion with God. And you think, well, how could they have faith when they hadn't fallen yet? Because faith is not necessarily part of sin. Faith is dependence upon the words of God, God himself. So they were living a perfect life of faith. Okay, so let's think about it in progression again. The serpent comes, Eve's just minding her own business. The serpent comes, and he presents this, this thought to her. Hey, don't you know that God's bad because he gave you a restriction? And the minute, well, Eve, okay, the fact that she interacted with those words wasn't sin. But the minute she looked at that tree and drew a conclusion about that tree different than what God had said was the moment of the fall. Considering his temptation in the sense that the words are coming to her and she's processing it, that wasn't sin. Right. Good. 100%. Right. Because she could have said to him, what? That's not true. God said, done. She, that would have not been sinful. You know, don't you know that God is bad because he gave you a restriction? Well, no, but that's not true, because God said, if we do this, we're going to die. No, God's good. What are you talking about? No sin there, even if she's interacting with the things he's saying. But the minute she believed him over God, that's when sin happened. Do you understand? So she fell when she broke independence from what God said and put her dependence in what he said, the devil. Well, anytime you fall you make yourself susceptible to breaking the laws of God because you've lost the power. And so at the moment that she fell, it was almost inevitable at that point she was going to eat of the fruit. So we think of the eating of the fruit as the point of the fall, but in technical terms, and this is important, it wasn't the eating of the fruit that made her fall. She fell and ate the fruit, right? And this is how the devil works all the time. The devil will come to you. He's going to point out things you don't have, Think of how much better your life would be if you had that thing, as if God is withholding from you something to make your life better, when in fact, God gives you every good and perfect gift. And so if you can remember, no, God has done everything right. I need to be content in what he has given me, not discontent in what I don't have. Because the devil always uh, magnifies what you don't have, like you're better if you do, and you don't know if in fact you're not having it is what's keeping you connected to life not ushering you into death. Okay, all right, so when uh, God made, um, made Adam and then by extension made his wife there uh, a few moments later, there's three parts of them. The part you can see, their personal self, their soul, and then the part that's connected to God. And um, so Sherry asked a question that's super important because I want to talk about it, and that would be this, that um, when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, or, more precisely, when they chose to believe the words of the devil over the words of God, what happened? This part got disconnected from God. And now, God, you've got to get this. It got disconnected from God and got connected to death. 
and the person of death is the devil. And so at the point that they fell from the words of God, believed the words of the devil, they got connected to the devil, and they lost the life of God. So they did, in fact, die at that moment, because the breath of life is God. And they got disconnected from the breath of life, became connected to death. And you know, every one of us are born connected to death. I hope you understand that. There are some of you I don't know, but I do want you all to know that though you're born connected to death, Jesus Christ died to usher you into life. And when you ask Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, what ends up happening is God frees you from death and puts back into you a connection to him and you and the Spirit of God become, 1 Corinthians 6, one spirit. Okay, so within all of us that are believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've transferred your dependence on him based on the work of Messiah, you now in your spirit are one with God. Okay, yes, real quick. It's really late. I didn't realize what I've done here. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be done at 10? Okay, all right, okay. I'm going to take a few more minutes because I haven't even made my point yet, so, yes. 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 Can you all? Yes. 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 Died. Yes. Yes. Okay, but died in the sense it was separated, not in the sense it wasn't functioning anymore. It just got connected to the wrong source. It got connected to death. I want you to hold your thought because I wonder if my further talking is going to answer your question. Okay, so uh, the day that you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, and I, if you haven't, today is the day you ought to do it. Uh, if you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, what God did at the very moment you were saved is his Spirit of God came in and quickened your spirit. So your spirit was reconnected to life, whereas you were born with it connected to death. It was reconnected to life. So now your spirit and the Holy Spirit literally became one. Kind of like in a marriage where the two are made one flesh, still two, but one. Your spirit and God's spirit are now one, still two, but they're one. And God literally interacts with us in our spirit by his spirit in a way that they're so connected. If you could see it, it might be hard to distinguish the two. But they're not the same. My spirit and the Holy Spirit aren't the same. But the Holy Spirit has come to indwell my spirit. The two have become one. And so God works in my spirit. But you know what? I like strawberry ice cream. I don't know what kind of ice cream you like. I like strawberry ice cream. I've liked strawberry ice cream my whole life. In fact, it's one of my, one of my preferences just below mint chip ice cream. That's my favorite. But um, my wife likes peanut butter chocolate ice cream. But, um, do you know, I've always liked strawberry ice cream. I remember going to the store as a little kid, and, and I would always get the strawberry ice cream with the big, you know, strawberry chunks in it. I just loved it. I've always loved strawberry ice cream. Do you know the day that I got saved, my love for strawberry ice cream didn't change. I didn't love it less, and I didn't love it more. And do you know, the day I got saved, my preference of strawberry ice cream was completely unaffected. Because my soul, in that sense was not at that moment affected by what happened in my spirit. My spirit was reconnected to God. And 
And uh, whether or not I like strawberry ice cream didn't matter at that moment, okay? Um, your soul is the real you. It's, the par it's like the, it's your personality, okay? It's, it's your preferences, it's your dislikes, it's what you think, it's what you feel, it's how you choose. And you know, getting saved doesn't automatically change your personality. Your personality is what your personality is, okay? What you will, how you feel, your emotions, that's a soul function, not a spirit function. That's a soul function. Your desires is a soul function, though, in a sense, your desires are connected to your body. Your body has impulses, right? Do you know your body, if you don't eat for a certain amount of time, will begin to feel hungry, and it will affect you where you're going to want to eat. Or if you're up too long and you haven't had enough sleep, your body's going to say, well, I really need sleep. So your body does certainly do some directing in your life, in that sense, and your soul does too. But what I want to talk about is how God means to manage your life, and then I'll be done. Okay, so I'm actually closer to being done than it might feel like. Um, the devil works upon us through something I want to call external pressure. It's external pressure because the devil, once you've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, and the Spirit of God comes and indwells your spirit, at that very moment, the devil has lost direct access. Jesus Christ says that you have your father, the devil. When you're born, you're of your father, the devil. The devil is literally what you're connected to, in the sense you're connected to death. But the minute you trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior and your spirit was made alive and connected to the Spirit of God, the devil lost direct access. Okay, ladies, I want you to never forget that. The devil lost direct access. So the only access the devil has in your life is indirect access. And I'm going to use the term external pressure. And so what the devil does, and he does this to you, he does it to you every day, is he exerts external pressure in your body and in your soul. And it's in 1 John that we find out that God, I'm sorry, excuse me, um, that the devil works through the lust of the flesh, uh, the lust of um, our eyes, and then the pride of life. And those are the three, the three venues that the devil exerts pressure on your life. He'll do it through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. My point today is not to define what all of those are, other than to make the point the devil has no direct access to your spirit. All he can do is exert external pressure. But I want to challenge you today with this, and this is the thought I want you to walk away with. I want to walk away with how God has meant to manage our lives. And that would be this. I want you to think of our body in a sense. This is almost overstating it, but I'm trying to make a point. Think of your person, your body, soul, and your spirit, the whole person. Think of it in terms of like a business, like a corporation. In a corporation, you think maybe in three levels. In a corporation, you might have the labor force, Uh, you know, the people that are, are getting it done. You know, the, the people at the factory that are, that are making the product, okay? You know, the labor force. 
then you have um, is there supposed to be a G there? An E? Management? I might have spelled it wrong. Um, then you have like your mid-management. You know, the people that are telling the labor force what to do. They're kind of directing them on the ground. But then you have one more layer in a corporate sense. And what would that final layer be? Maybe the top layer. CEO, uh, you know, you got the corporate heads, you know, the people that either they own the business or they're the ones who are, are clearly given the authority to guide in the big picture of the business. Okay, so we're just going to call it the CEO, but by that I mean, you know, all of those. So you've got like the, the upper management, the owners, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the officers of the business, mid-management and labor. And in a good business, it is the, it is the ownership that gives direction uh, to the mid-management, and then it's mid-management that is guiding in the labor force. That's how it works, right? It's supposed to be that you got the people that have the most responsibility, you know, the, the CEO is responsible to the shareholders, and you know, they've got to make it happen, so they've got this big responsibility. They're the ones who are setting directives to the mid-management, okay, we've got to hit this quota, we've got to make this happen by such and such a time. They're giving directives, the mid-management makes sure it happens in on the ground level, okay? Of course, you and I both could think of a thousand stories where the ground level didn't like what mid-management was saying and they revolted against blah, 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 and it got all messy and whatever. That's not the point. Okay, in a well-structured corporation, you have those with the greatest responsibility giving direction to those that are going to facilitate the getting it done. And that is how God intends for our lives to be. That the Spirit of God within our spirit, the two have been made one, the Spirit of God within our spirit who is connected to God, the source of life, the one who has a perfect plan for us. He is the one, our spirit is the one guiding in our soul, our personality, our faculties, our mind, our emotions, our will, directing through that part of us so that our body can fulfill the will of God. That's how God plans for it to be. And I want to use this term, and I've kind of lost space on the board, but if how the devil works is through external pressure, then here's the phrase I want you to remember today, and that would be internal persuasion. Internal persuasion. Persuasion. All right, internal. I have my wife sitting there, so when I spell the word wrong, she can look at me and go. All right, internal persuasion. All right, I want you to look at Hebrews 4. And then I'm going to wrap it up with this. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. Familiar verse. Ephesians 4 and verse 12. Uh, it says, The word of God is quick and powerful. Um, in uh, the end of 1 Thessalonians, it says, And I pray, God, your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless until the day of our Lord Jesus. And God does plan for the whole of his redeemed you to be preserved, protected, guided all the way through. So your body and your soul and your spirit are one, and God wants to preserve all. But here it says that the word of God is quick and powerful. Quick means alive. Sharper than any two-edged sword, and I want you to catch these words now, piercing 
even to the dividing asunder of what? Soul and spirit. Joints and marrow, discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Okay, here's what I want you all to walk away with. And that's this. The, the, the devil knows what he's doing and that his tricks are pretty much always the same. He's going to focus on what you don't have. He's going to try and convince you that what you don't have is going to make your life better. Uh, that life is in what you don't have. And yet God has promised every good and perfect gift to you. And so God's will is best. And the devil will always draw your attention to what you don't have to make you discontent with what you do have to draw you away from what the good and perfect gift is God has given to you so you'll live wanting what you don't need, so on and so forth. So God wants to, by his spirit, he wants to guide you into his will. So as the spirit of God is unleashed in your life, you can better understand his will so that your soul can choose to respond in obedience to the spirit's leadership and make your body Make it happen. But you know what happens a lot of times to our souls is through external pressure and just raw impulse, we listen to the wrong source. So the devil pressures us. Listen, you can't read your Bible today. Are you kidding? If you read your Bible today, do you know how tired you are? You're not going to stay awake anyway. Don't even try. You ought to just sleep in a half an hour longer. You're going to do a whole lot better if you get just a little bit more sleep. Don't worry about your Bible today. Or... Um, there's the only illustration I can think of. But there's a thousand other ways, right, where the devil's going to, he's going to pressure you through your body, and your body's going to say, yeah, I need this, or, you know, God understands, and you can literally make, like, fleshly choices based on your soul responding, or I just don't feel, or I feel, or here's what I want, here's what I think, and you can begin to be soulish in how you're living and ignore what the Spirit of God is saying. So here's what the Word of God does for you. The Bible itself, it's a living book, teaches you to divide asunder soul and spirit. Okay, here's the point I want to make about this. Listen, your soul is not visible. You, I can't see your personality other than how it ends up, you know, kind of manifesting itself through the part of you I can see. But I can't see your soul. I can't see your brain. I can't see your emotion. Well, I can sometimes see your emotions, but I can't, I can't see the, the seed of your emotions, seed of your emotions, right? So all of your soul part, I can't see it. And I can't see the spirit. And do you know all of us have to learn to discern the difference between those two parts of us? And I want you to get this. It's not natural. It takes learning. And I think what happens a lot of times, maybe to ladies in a different way than men, but both certainly, is we can mistake soul for spirit and think I'm being directed in my spirit when it's really just my soul. And I make bad choices, bad emotions, bad thoughts, because I'm assuming my soul is how God is speaking. In fact, it's not God. It's either external pressure from the devil or just inside perversion within me. Uh, sin within me, and I actually, ma I can actually mistake my, my soul for God. So here's what the Bible does for you, and I want you to get this. The Bible trains you to discern between the two, so you can know, okay, that's clearly God speaking through my spirit, and respond to the spirit by your soul, directing your body. Otherwise, you will forever be a slave to your soulish impulses, that is so often affected by the uh, 
the, just the natural uh, needs of your body. And uh, no lady should live like that. You should be in a place where the Spirit of God is able to direct super clearly and you understand his voice. And I want to challenge you with this. It takes practice. It takes practice. Do you know why you're supposed to read your Bible and pray every day? Because if you don't, you're not going to understand God's will. And it's when you're, when you're praying and you're reading the word of God and God's using his word to speak to you that you learn his voice. You learn his voice. Because if you don't go through the effort of reading your Bible, which is God speaking to you and learning his voice, then when you're going through your day, you're going to mistake internal voices and thoughts and impulses that are just soulish as being from God. You're going to get your life all mixed up. And you've got to learn, God, speak to me. Do you know God knows how to speak to you? He's not confused. If you feel like it's hard to hear God, it's not because God wasn't clear. It's because you haven't trained your ear to hear. Okay, so what does the Bible do? The Bible trains us to, to separate between soul and spirit. It doesn't win the battle every time because we can still choose our soul over our spirit. But at least we can discern the difference so our soul can respond to the spirit rather than ignoring the spirit and just following its own impulses and so on. So here's the last illustration. I'm done. My wife um, is the younger sister of twins. And uh, Robin and Lisa are three years older than she is. And uh, so her whole life, she grew up with these twins above her, Robin and Lisa. Identical twins. Lisa was older. Robin is older. Either way, they're identical twins. When I first met my wife back in the day and I met Robin and Lisa, they were the same person. I'm like, oh man, how will I ever tell the difference? They look the same. And though you know how it goes over time, you kind of begin to figure this or that out. And then by you know, years later, they didn't even look the same anymore. You know, it was like super obvious who is Robin, who is Lisa, super obvious. They look different. Uh, but I remember when I first met them thinking, man, I will never know the difference between these two identical twins. Um, so eventually I figured it out. If I saw Robin and Lisa, either, they didn't have to be together. Like the Reigns twins, I have to see them together to know the difference. I could tell the difference whether they're together or not. Like the Dedek twins, I still don't know the difference. Okay, but I, I could tell them apart, didn't matter where they were. But there was something I never got good at. And I say never did because unfortunately years ago her one sister, Lisa, was killed in a motorcycle accident. So this illustration is actually a little bit dated in that sense. But um, I remember they would call my wife. You know, pick up the phone. You know, hey, Micah, uh, is Jenny there? Okay, I knew it was her sister. But I didn't know which one. I, you know, I could never tell. On the phone, sounded the same. And I just didn't talk to him much on the phone. So, you know, hey, Mike, is Jenny there? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And I'd hand the phone to my wife. And within a nanosecond, oh, hey, Rob. Oh, hey, Lise. I couldn't do that. They'd call on the phone. I didn't know who it was. And here's why I didn't know. Because without my eyes, I had not yet learned the difference in voice. So sight unseen, I hadn't learned to discern the difference. Now, if I ended up talking to both of them every day on the phone, you know, I'm sure I'd figure it out because I could learn the difference because they're not the same. Rob and Lisa were not the same person. I could have figured it out. But without sight, the unseen was not distinguishable to me. To her, well, she grew up hearing their voices her whole life. So she knew the difference. She didn't have to think about it. So she knew, hey, Rob, hey, Lise, she knew it right away. Because she, she had, I hope you understand the point. She had learned to discern 
the difference, though unseen. And I never had that opportunity, so I couldn't discern the difference. And I want to challenge you ladies with this. Ladies, naturally, you do not know the difference. Naturally, you will not know the difference. In ladies, especially because you are so relationship-oriented and, and uh, so much more intuitive. You know, guys are half brain dead most of the time. Women are intuitive. So you've got this, like, sense of you. Now, I'm telling you, ladies, that makes you vulnerable because that sense, if that sense isn't clearly discerned to be in God's voice, you can think it's God when it's really just your internal impulses and you'll get yourself in trouble. And so here's why reading the Bible must be an everyday thing. You've got to learn to discern the difference. And when you can tell, oh, that's God speaking, then you can follow God as he directs through your soul to your body. Otherwise, you can literally get yourself mixed up thinking that that internal thought as, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to use the word internal and confuse you, but that impulse as the devil pressures you is God when it's not God. Um, so we talked about the will of God, and faith is dependence upon the word of God. And uh, faith, just like for Adam and Eve, is dependence on the word of God. And you fall when you replace the will and word of God, or the words and will of God, for somebody else, either yourself, the devil, or so on. And, and you fall when you transfer dependence from God's to another. And uh, this is how it always works. It's how it always works. The devil points out what you don't have. You can choose to depend upon what he is saying, either through your own internal desires or external pressures. And God just wants to usher you into life, love, his plan, and it's going to take discernment. It's going to take work, and it's by the Spirit of God. And once you, hurt, once you learn his voice, and it's not natural, it's supernatural. And uh, let me just encourage you today. It's the Word of God, faith in the Word of God, that gives you life and freedom but you have to exercise it, all right? Okay, that's good. Well, let's just pray about it. Lord, I pray for these ladies, and hopefully the uh, thoughts here presented will bring clarity to them. And Lord, I do want uh, every lady in here uh, to learn to discern that difference. So when uh, they're wrestling with even their emotions or, or uncertainty about what to do, or um, that you can bring clarity through their soul to direct in their lives, so that they don't get muddied in their soul and wonder what you're saying. Lord, I pray you'd help them through the word of God and prayer, through those realities in their life, to learn to depend upon the simplicity of your will and your way so that they can, so that they can live in life with you. And uh, give them discernment between those two, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.